Don't wait for your next job to do your best work. Think about every job you get as the most important job and as the thing that is perhaps your last job. Satya Nadella has been the CEO of Microsoft since 2014. He has refreshed an aging tech giant and pushed the company into artificial intelligence and cloud networking. In his view from the top discussion at Stanford GSB, Nadella told students that a sense of purpose is invaluable to company success and how through relationships with others, work becomes more than just transactional. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Sacha, we are so excited to have you today, as you can see. Um, you've said that Microsoft's mission is not to be cool, it's to make <laughs> others cool. But Bob Dylan is playing across campus today, and you sold out faster than him, so <laughs> we certainly think Microsoft is cool. Really, though, we are so grateful to you for making the time to be with us, and we have a lot to cover. But I thought we could start with your childhood in India. You've said that your father never met a test, he didn't ace, while your mother was the opposite of a tiger mom. I love that contrast, and I'm curious how their different life philosophies shaped you. First of all, thank you so much, Tara, for having me here. It's great to be uh, at the GSB, and um, um, you know, Bob Dylan was my idol, so times <laughs> must be changing. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, in fact, I, I just, uh, my father passed away just last month, and I've been reflecting uh, quite a bit on uh, uh, what my, uh, both my parents have meant to me. Um, and uh, my father was a Marxist economist and a civil servant, um, and uh, he had a, you know, a definitive point of view on uh, what uh, uh, life was all about and, and the struggle of life, and uh, he's right. I mean, he, the, he, you know, the guy always used to look at my marks, I mean, my uh, scorecards, and, and used to be amazed that somebody could be that bad. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but luckily enough, I think in some sense, he gave me, in spite of all of that, a lot of confidence because to him, he felt like, look, it's a marathon. Uh, you'll catch up. This is not that hard. Uh, and my mother was exactly the opposite. Of course, all the only question she would ever ask me is, are you happy? And I would say, what the heck does that mean? Like, you know, when you're reading my scorecard, I don't know whether I should be happy or not. Uh, but again, the two of them, I think, when I look back, growing up in Hyderabad in India in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, interestingly enough, there are three or four of us who now suddenly have been, become CEOs from the same high school in this, you know, uh, at that time, what was uh, off the grid place. Um, I think it was that ability to think, uh, that ability to pursue your own passions, um, and have, you know, enough confidence uh, as well as some humility. Uh, as sort of, when I look back, have been, you know, perhaps the biggest drivers of what's sort of turned out to be a reasonable, you know, set of things. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's really clear how much your parents influenced you. And another foundational influence for you was sports. Now, my fellow international classmates and I were mystified daily by American sports references. So we're very happy to talk about cricket. Yeah. You love cricket and you dreamt of playing professionally. 
What lessons did you take from the pitch? Well, I mean, um, you know, all of us who are South Asian are obsessed with that sport. And, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, in fact, that's right. I mean, that, that was what I was pretty much all bound up in all through my uh, high school into college. Um, and, you know, when I look back, you know, I think all sport teaches you a lot. Uh, and especially, at least, I feel team sport uh, I think has a huge impact in how you think about uh, leadership. Uh, I'll never forget this one particular uh, incident that I've, I think, subsequently written about. Uh, there was this guy who was my school captain uh, who went on to do pretty well uh, in, in the context of Indian cricket. Uh, I was bowling trash that day, uh, and he took over from me, got a wicket, which is a breakthrough, uh, but then he gave me the ball back, and then I went on to have perhaps the best bowling spell I've ever had in my life. Uh, and I always reflected as to why did he do that? And then, uh, in fact, much later on in life, I went back and asked him even. Uh, and so at least the way I surmised, it was a leadership decision he made of saying, look, I recognize that this guy, he had recognized the importance of not breaking my confidence uh, and I said, look, well, that's a pretty enlightened decision for a high school leader, you know, captain of a cricket team to make. Uh, and a lot of leadership lessons is that, right, which is you've got to make hard calls on, say, performance. But also, you've got to be able to sort of understand that you need your team. And it's not like everybody's going to have a good day all the time. And that subtle distinction uh, and that judgment, right, which is one of the things that I feel which is the most understated part of leadership is judgment, uh, and it's so important. And that judgment comes by you exercising this muscle around passing judgment uh, and learning from it. And I thought that's one of the lessons I learned. He was building your confidence in that's a way right. by making these. That's right. Uh, so you didn't end up playing professional cricket, sadly. I, 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 here I am. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but you did make your way to the US, and soon after you started your own family. And in reading your book, something that really moved me was how much you talk about your family and the role they've played bringing empathy into your life. Could you share with us how being a parent has shaped you? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very big uh, part, in a part of uh, what has perhaps shaped uh, uh, my worldview. Uh, and for both my wife and me, both my wife and I grew up together. We went to the same schools. Um, and we were the only children of our parents, so the, when uh, we were both late, in our late 20s, when our first son was about to be born, we were very excited. The household was all about, you know, um, my wife's an architect, and so she was practicing at that time, and so my only concern was, oh, when will Anu go back to school? I would go back to uh, work, and how are we going to think about the baby's uh, daycare and what have you? Uh, and lo and behold, uh, one night, um, uh, you know, there was some complications and uh, our son Zayn was born. Uh, because of uh, some complications, he, uh, he now has uh, cerebral palsy. He's, uh, uh, he got, has, has quadriplegia and uh, is locked in. And I would say for the first maybe as many as five years, I struggled with it, um, primarily because I felt that all these plans that I had for what our life was going to be like um, had taken a real turn. And, uh, and then I watched Anu go up and down 520 in Seattle, taking him to every therapy possible, speech, occupational. 
Uh, and then I was just watching it and still moaning uh, my own sort of whatever uh, issues. But then it dawned on me uh, that nothing actually happened to me. Uh, something had happened to my son and that I needed to, as a father, step up and do my duty. In other words, it is the harsh but real lesson around being able to see the world through the eyes of my son. Right? That's what empathy is all about. Um, and, and I think that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's innate in us all as humans. Uh, I think empathy is something that we are all very capable of. Uh, life teaches us that. Uh, and in small ways and in, in, in tough ways. Like I remember even the, the last interview by the last interviewer when I was interviewing at Microsoft was also a life-changing moment for me. Uh, so I went through this interview. It was all code on screen at that time. And, you know, and so this guy sort of says, hey, here's a question for you. You're at the crossroads. A baby falls and is crying. What will you do? And I say, wow, this is some search algorithm I didn't learn. Uh, it must be some variant of some traveling salesman problem or something. And I sort of really thought about it for a few minutes. And then I said, I'll go to the phone booth and call 911. This is pre-smartphone. Um, and uh, so he gets up. He escorts me out. And he says, you know what? You need to develop some empathy. Because when a baby falls, you pick them up and hug them first before you call. Uh, and I thought, that's it. I'm definitely not going to get this job. Um, <laughs> and, and, and lo and behold, I did get the job. But nevertheless, I mean, I, I really think that that's so core. And some people say, well, like, what, what does that have to do with sort of business? Or what does it have to do with uh, work? And I believe it has everything to do with work. You know, I believe if you sort of say innovation is all about meeting unmet, unarticulated needs of customers. Where is that source of your ability to get in touch with that unmet, unarticulated need going to come from? It's going to come from your ability to, in some sense, be able to listen between the lines, uh, to be able to extrapolate. Uh, and that's, to me, deep sense of empathy, right? So people talk about design thinking. I think design thinking is empathy. Uh, and so therefore, I do believe that you know, life teaches you empathy, and you know, empathy is the source to success in any innovative uh, agenda you have. It's inspiring to hear you say that you think empathy is innate when it, we're living in a world where sometimes it feels like empathy is on the decline. So I think um, your point around empathy is, is really well taken. It's a great question, because in fact, you know, it is such a big word, uh, and it is hard. Uh, in fact, even recently at Microsoft, we realized uh, that it's important for us to even understand what are the necessary conditions to even develop empathy. Mm -hmm. So one of the words we have developed, you know, we have put into our sort of parlance is respect. Mm -hmm. For example, if you don't start with from a place of having some respect for the other person's views, where they come from, their complete history, uh, it's very hard to develop empathy. So therefore, I think you're absolutely right to say, you know, before you think about some of these higher level things, you have to sort of even question what are the you know, basics that we need to get right. Absolutely. And that's become so core to your leadership at Microsoft. So if we turn now to Microsoft, before you were CEO, you took this job leading Microsoft's first real cloud business. And Steve Ballmer apparently told you this might be your last job at Microsoft because if you fail, there's no parachute. That feels like a lot of pressure. Why did you make that jump? <laughs> You know, um, you know, Steve, who went to school here, 
um, had many. <laughs> he just went for one year, from what I understand. <laughs> oh, this is the funniest thing I should tell said this. I mean, I guess the other guy who went to school here was Mukesh Ambani. So I believe one day uh, uh, Steve Ballmer was introducing Mukesh in Bombay. Um, and uh, he joked that both of us dropped out of GSB, except that Mukesh had never told anybody that he had dropped out of GSB, so there was a, a real scandal. <laughs> and uh, so Steve, uh, you know, wanted us to really take this new business area, which is our online business. Um, in fact, uh, Susan, who's here, and I worked on it uh, for a long time as well, and he felt that, look, this was a place where we needed to make progress. And uh, Steve had this very uh, clear sense of what it means to succeed. And his point was, you're going to go learn a lot. Uh, and uh, of course, I'll fire you if you don't do a good job of it. Uh, and it was sort of a way for him to perhaps communicate both why he as the CEO cared uh, about this business, uh, and at the same time, his expectations. Uh, but I must say, that particular tour of duty has been the most influential in how uh, I've sort of thought about whether it's distributed computing at its core, whether it's the economic models uh, that are going to be emergent. Uh, and that has been very, very helpful. Doing different things inside the company mm. uh, has helped me grow to run the company eventually. So, you know, I actually appreciate Steve both giving me that opportunity and more importantly, giving me the message uh, that look, at the end of the day, it's performance that matters. Did you know at the time that that decision was putting you on a path to one day becoming the CEO? No, no way. <laughs> you know, most people ask me this, uh, which is like, hey, did you have a, uh, a sense that you'll become CEO? Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, first of all, none of us grew up even, uh, to us, especially having grown up at Microsoft, I don't think I even thought of a Microsoft where Bill and Steve were not actively in, uh, engaged. I mean, it was just not even in the uh, realm of possibility. Uh, the thing, though, I would say, especially, you know, business school graduates are an ambitious lot, and you're all sort of saying, when am I going to be my, you know, a CEO? My only advice there would be, uh, all, you know, it's like, don't wait for your next job to do your best work. Uh, that, I think, is the crux of it, which is if you think about every job you get uh, as the most important job and as the thing that is perhaps your last job, uh, but you gave it all, and of course, you know, from there, a lot of things will happen. And that's at least how I, it was not like the job that I had before becoming CEO, I somehow thought uh, was just a stop on the way to something else. I actually thought that that was a fantastic job until, you know, I got the next job. And that next job was ultimately to become the CEO of Microsoft. And when you took that job, you faced some high expectations. Microsoft is struggling. You're following, as you mentioned, Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer. And many people thought that the CEO should come from outside. So what did you draw on in that moment? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a consummate insider. I've grown up at Microsoft now 28 years. Um, and uh, I also recognize, to your point, uh, that I was taking over from Steve and Bill, and Steve, even though was not a founder for he had founder status in the company. Uh, Bill and Steve built the company. Bill and Paul founded the company. And uh, 
The one thing that perhaps I was more grounded, having worked with them, uh, is as a non-founder CEO, I needed to make explicit some of the things that I think founder CEOs can take for granted, because founder CEOs can carry just because of who they are and what they mean to the organization a lot and telegraph that very broadly and have followership. Whereas I described myself as a mere mortal CEO, I felt I needed uh, that sense of purpose to be deeply rekindled as something that I you know, reinforced and culture. Both sort of these two pillars of sense of purpose and culture needed to become much more explicit. Uh, for example, when I joined uh, Microsoft in 92, we used to talk about our mission as putting a PC in every home and every desk. Uh, it was pretty inspiring, right? I mean, you could even do an Excel spreadsheet, P times Q, it was easy to compute. Um, and, and except by the late 90s, we had more or less achieved that, at least in the developed world. And since then, we had the struggle of what's next. Uh, and I felt like I needed to sort of go back, in fact, to the very origin of the company, right? I mean, Microsoft got started uh, when we built, or Paul and Bill built, uh, the basic interpreter for the Altair. Um, and I believe that everything that needs to be known about Microsoft in 2019 can be traced back to our origin, uh, which is we build technology so that others can build more technology, right? I felt like we were doing things out of envy and others. We needed to get back to what we, our core identity is, right? Especially in 2019, where every company is a software company around the world. Uh, we can just basically be a software platform and tools provider and have a good business. And so I felt, let's be proud of who we are. Of course, we've got to express it differently. Uh, and, and then, you know, really reinforce that. That's why we talk about our mission around empowering people and organizations. The other piece, though, is we had to work on our culture. Uh, you know, I distinctly remember, I guess it was 98 when we first uh, became... Uh, the largest market cap company in the world. Uh, and many of us, you know, were lucky enough to participate on that wave of growth. Uh, but I remember that day when we walked around, you could see in the, you know, in campus, people thought, wow, we must be God's gifts to mankind. Uh, right? We're so smart. We're so good. Look at us. And, and except that was not the case. I mean, the case was, uh, you know, it's a temporal thing, and it only matters. What matters is your ability to learn, grow, be grounded in the realities, and you know, and our customers and what have you. And so that's why I wanted uh, a culture that stood for that learning organization. And in fact, my wife had introduced me to a book by a, a Stanford professor, Carol Dweck. Um, uh, which I'd read Mindset many years before I became CEO. You know, it was a huge influence in our household uh, as it uh, relates to our own children's education. But quite frankly, it was a great education for me because when I read that book, I realized that that, that notion of growth mindset applies to individuals like me. It applies to companies like Microsoft. So we took that meme of growth mindset and said, look, let's not be know-it-alls, let's be learn-it-alls and has been a very helpful uh, part of, I would say, our journey around this, uh, what is a cultural meme that we can even make first class, that we can have a real dialogue on. Absolutely. And you, you talk a lot about this cultural shift. Um, in, in looking back at that over the last five years, what was the most difficult part to change? Because you've, you instilled growth mindset, you did all of these things, but what were, what were the 
hardest roadblocks? Look, I mean, I think it's always, uh, it's a challenge. It's one thing to say growth mindset because sometimes people will come to me and say at Microsoft, uh, Satya, we found the 10 people who don't have a growth mindset. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the point about that, it's not about going looking for 10 people. Yeah. Uh, it's about me being comfortable with confronting the, my own fixed mindset each day. And that's the hard part of it. When you say you're a learning organization and you say, we are, we've learned that here are the 10 people who have not learned, uh, then that's a problem. Uh, and, and I think that that's the, the, the reality of it, right? How do you bring about long-term change? I mean, I'll say one other thing. One of the reasons why I feel uh, at least we have some momentum. Uh, I'm very, very careful not to sort of paint this as some destination we will reach or have reached for sure. Uh, it's going to be something that every day we're going to have to confront our fixed mindset. We're always going to be imperfect. There is going to be a gap between what is our espoused sort of culture uh, and what is the lived experience. The question is, are we working to bridge that gap? Uh, and it's very uncomfortable, especially in business where everything is graded by, you know, how close to perfection are you? To say, let's be imperfect and celebrate imperfection is just a hard thing. And that's why uh, leadership at the top, setting the tone, walking the walk, uh, I think is the hard part. Um, but, you know, anyway, that's the, the, the real, I would say, challenge of being able to implement change at scale. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you want to set this culture of a growth mindset where people can take risks and make mistakes and learn from them. And you want to walk the walk. The walk. Um, when have you had to lead by example on this front? Well, I mean, every day, I would say. But, I would, you know, in, in some sense, the, the decision one makes um, in, like, for me, the ability to sort of take even take diversity and inclusion. Uh, the, the, the saying the word, saying we're going to make progress uh, is one thing. And then to recognize that progress has to be something that really has to come from one's own first change in behavior, right? Um, and take the everyday experience of the senior leadership team meeting itself. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Every time I question myself on everything that we talk about as what we espouse that is more broadly applicable across the company, how much of it is represented in the behaviors, starting with me, of our own senior leadership team? Mm -hmm. We have some very, very uh, amazing women who are part of our leadership team. Uh, are they participating? Um, like anybody else, and in fact, am I allowing for them to be able to really make sure that we are listening to them, they are able to feel like they're driving the company, and, and starting with that type of sensibility, which by the way is not constant, but at least are we pushing is sort of the way I think I, you know, I remind myself of how important to your point about it sort of putting uh, it everyday practice. Uh, we have three things that are the cultural uh, I would say pillars for us, right? One is diversity and inclusion. The other one is customer obsession. And then the other one is to bring the company together as one company as opposed to, you know, you know fragmented set of P&Ls. All three of these are just super hard. Uh, easy to say, uh, but require everyday practice starting with me. Absolutely. And I think diversity and inclusion is an interesting one because it's a topic that can invoke a lot of defensiveness. So to apply a growth mindset to that area 
is particularly powerful. Yeah, you know, for example, the thing that we have recognized is you have to pull, I mean, you have to do a lot of things here. For example, we even changed the compensation of our senior leaders, starting, or even mine, uh, to ensure that we take this as a huge priority. You could say, well, you know, is the compensation change the real thing? Of, you know, I'm not saying it's the only thing that needs to change, but it's an important thing. Uh, I myself had probably perhaps not recognized that uh, measuring things, having a real metric around it, uh, and then compensating is actually is a good sort of start on a lot of fronts. And so, uh, but the thing that we've come to realize is every intern class that joins Microsoft every year is more diverse than the previous one. But then they look around and say, well, where's that diversity um, you know, in the company? And so that means the real currency of a culture is inclusiveness. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, the core job of what leaders do and what is the everyday experience uh, of uh, you know, what happens at Microsoft. Interestingly enough, I've also come to recognize that that first level manager has probably the most influence uh, on what happens. And so I, I, I distinctly remember as a lead at Microsoft with five people working for me who all were thinking, why is this guy leading us, right? I mean, it's always the case because the first level job is the hardest job because uh, there are five people who are also you know, just recent graduates who are sort of looking at you and saying, I can do what you do. Uh, and then you have a boss who's asking you to do many things. And so it's sort of real pressure cooker in the sense you sort of really have to um, you know, do a lot. But that's when your attitude, your nurturing of that five people who are working for you around inclusiveness will matter a lot. So one of the things that we are doubling down is, are we truly supporting managers uh, you know, at all levels to be able to sort of, in fact, support uh, their team so that they can bring the best out of them and then f have them feel included uh, as part of the, the company. So we've talked a lot about culture. Let's shift and talk a bit about strategy and particularly the cloud, because today we sort of take the cloud for granted. But when you took over, it was still far from a sure thing. And you made this bold bet cementing Microsoft's strategy in the cloud. How did you rally others around that vision when many were convinced it wouldn't work? I mean, you know, our, our, our challenge with um, the cloud was we had a very, very successful business in what was the client-server era. And uh, sort of you look at any P&L that says, oh, here is a new business. By the way, it's got gross margins that are sort of one-fourth of those gross margins of the current business. Oh, and it'll be good. <laughs> Uh, it's hard uh, to sort of uh, look at those kind of transitions because all rationality says that, you know, you should avoid it as much as possible. Uh, and except in, in tech in particular and many other businesses, these transitions are secular. They're inevitable. And uh, so the question is, um, you know, how do you make that transition? And that's where I must say Steve, when he was a CEO, was the one who gave me permission. Um, and uh, the decision he made was, look, we want to go after this. Uh, and one of the things that I've realized as leaders, and many of you in your careers are going to make these kinds of decisions, you, in, we are all about solving these over-constrained problems, right? I mean, classic over-constrained problem is, oh, you have a huge profit margin, uh, and now you've got to go build a new business that sort of, sort of replaces this business, 
And by the way, you should have the same gross profit margin. And guess what? It's not possible. So someone, somewhere, has to remove some constraint. Who does it? Leaders do it. So he removed the constraint called gross margin. He said, go win this market. Uh, and that's what was then made it possible for us to do all those things that have now gotten us to the other side. Uh, but to me, I've learned a lot from that. So in fact, if anything, I feel like as a leader, sometimes you, know, you get to speak from both sides of the mouth, right? which is, oh, I need growth and I need profit. Uh, in many cases, your job as leaders is to, in fact, unconstrained, take on the risk. Uh, in fact, in the first uh, multiple years, uh, Amy Hood, who's my CFO, and myself, we said, look, let, let us take on the risk. Uh, and then actually met, metric a lot of our leaders more on customer satisfaction, usage, uh, versus uh, profit, revenue even. Uh, and I think that that's sort of the type of decision-making one needs in order to make these harsh transitions. And when you look back and you, you look at all that you've done on culture and strategy and making this bold bet, are you able to tell which one moved the needle more for Microsoft's renewal? I fundamentally believe that uh, you know, strategies or markets will always be coming and going. There'll be lots of changes. Uh, I'm a fundamental believer in that sense of purpose and culture as the two, two pillars that are necessary in order to get a lot of other things right. Of course, if you don't get your strategy right or your ability to sort of ride a particular wave of innovation, uh, and especially in tech, you, it's pretty harsh. Uh, right? I mean, uh, it's very hard to recover. But that said, though, the question is, what is it that will give you the best probability of even catching those? Uh, and to me, that sense of purpose, which I think is a reflection of what you're innately good at as an organization, right? It's comparative advantage, uh, except it's codified uh, in that identity. And culture is what that allows you to express that identity with new opportunity. Mm. I think many of us in this room want to use our careers to create impact at scale, and you have committed almost 30 years to Microsoft, which seems unfathomable to many of us. How do you think about... It flies by. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think about entrepreneurship and this idea for those among us who maybe want to work in large organizations to create change in the world? What advice would you have? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I mean, I think that, you know, all organizations, small or large, all have uh, amazing opportunities. But I'll make the case uh, for a large organization, and especially an organization like Microsoft. I mean, think about it. If you want to have impact at scale, um, in fact, I, you know, one of the reasons, you know, there are two things. When I'm trying to recruit at a college, I'm always telling people, like, hey, look, if you want to be cool, go join somebody else. But if you want to make others cool, join Microsoft. And I say that because I believe that you know, which other organization will be able to have in 190 plus countries the impact on small business productivity, public sector efficiency, multinationals in any part of the world and their competitiveness globally, health outcomes, education outcomes. This is scale at, at you know, enormous rate. And so therefore, uh, if you want, join a company like this, but then you have to have the following, um, I would say, sensibility. Guess what? You got to work with others. Uh, in other words, uh, that's, I think, a 
key important skill. Like, what does it mean? I mean, you do a lot of that. Many of you have got a lot of work experience even before coming to business school. Uh, but if, if fundamentally, to do anything useful and big and at scale, it's all about teams. Teams inside or teams outside, uh, that's what it takes. Um, and the second thing uh, that you also need is to realize that you know, a lot of people talk about the matrix and the complexity of large organizations. That's again the case. I mean, even for small companies, you just have a different type of matrix. You'll have a VC, you'll have a board, you'll have customers. Uh, so it's, you're never going to escape working with people. Uh, you're never going to escape bringing multiple constituents together. Uh, and I think that you should pick whether whatever size of organization recognize that scale only comes because you've been able to bring many constituents together. Mm. You say that we can never escape working with people, which brings me to my next section on AI. Um, you are a big <laughs> proponent of AI, and you believe that AI will be good for humankind. And you argue that in an AI future, human traits like empathy and creativity will be more important than ever. And yet, in some ways, technology has made us less connected. So how do you see AI augmenting humanity rather than detracting from it? Look, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to spend some time uh, with your own uh, work around this human-centered AI and uh, the work you're doing there. I think it's so important. Uh, here's how I come at it. Um, first, before we get into, get into some of the unintended consequences of AI, uh, one of the areas that I am uh, deeply involved in is accessibility, right? I mean, think about what AI has done uh, to people who need the most help, right? Um, uh, say if you have ALS, now with eye gaze, uh, you can type and communicate. Uh, if you have uh, visual you know, uh, impairment of any sort, you can interpret the world by using the latest in computer vision. Uh, if you have dyslexia, be using some machine reading and comprehension techniques, you can start you know, teaching a middle school kid uh, how to read, uh, because reading then leads to their participation in our economy. So I would first say, some of AI and say AI capabilities are helping more of us participate fully in our societies and in our economies. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be clear-eyed about the consequences of AI, right? The first one is what are the ethics of AI? Uh, we as, uh, in fact, creators of these platforms and tools have to even, before we even get to sort of the big topic of ethics, improve the state of the art of the software engineering around AI so that things like bias and so on are, uh, are being dealt with. You know, there's this fantastic line I love of, of Rilke's, which is he talks about how the future enters in you and transforms itself in you before it becomes real. So we are creating AI. It's humans who are creating AI. So we get to shape, uh, you know, what the craft of creation of AI looks like, uh, how we design systems where the human is in loop. We get to decide that as a society even, uh, what we are comfortable with and not comfortable with. So I don't want to abdicate all of that, uh, you know, and feel like this is just going to happen outside of our control. Uh, so that's at least how I think about it. And also on the employment side, um, I, I do believe that, for example, I mean, you know, this, um, 
Is it zero sum? I don't think that is the case. I think that there will be more jobs. The question is, how do we really use, in fact, all of the uh, sort of levers we have, uh, economic and social, to skill people for the jobs that are going to be there? And many of those skills might be different types of skills than the ones that are valued today. Uh, for example, there's no reason why our society can't have wage support for teachers. Um, in, in a different way, in a world where there's a lot of abundance uh, of AI doing a lot of other things for us, uh, or artists, or what have you. So therefore, I think we will come up with mechanisms, um, and um, you know, I hope that uh, we have, uh, you know, I, and in fact, more than hope, I feel that we shouldn't abdicate uh, our responsibility to control our own future uh, that I think we all want to live in. Mm. And given Microsoft's vision to democratize AI, you know, there are concerns about what might happen if those tools get into the wrong hands. And you've just mentioned not to abdicate that sort of responsibility. So how do you think about who to partner with in light of those concerns? Right, I mean, there's multiple things. So one is, what is it that we ourselves will uh, do to, in some sense, uh, have some core principles that define what we do and then who we work with? Uh, you know, take facial recognition, that's quickly becoming... Uh, the topic which I think is going to even have regulatory frameworks around it. In the state of Washington, we participated even in creation of that uh, regulation. Uh, so I think that first, before we, you know, even the regulation is in place, we have guidelines on what we think is the right use because the maturity of the models really make it possible, you know, only sensible to use it in certain use, use cases and not in others. And being clear about it uh, and then ensuring uh, that that's what we do uh, and then working, knowing that there will be, like, there's food safety, there should be AI safety. I mean, there will be regulation, uh, and uh, we should be okay with it. In fact, if anything, our practices and our data of what's good, what's not, what's the state of technology should inform that regulation. Mm. So you bring up the topic of regulation, and today it seems that relationships between regulators and many large tech companies are fraught. Uh, in its early days, Microsoft may have fought its own battles, but today Microsoft is leading with openness. And so what's your advice for the aspiring tech leaders here on balancing that pressure to grow as a company with your responsibility to society? That's an interesting question. Um, here's, here's what I've at least uh, learned. In fact, Brad Smith, who's another colleague of mine who recently wrote a book, uh, called Tools and Weapons, uh, he reflects because he was very much part, he worked with Bill, he worked with Steve, and now he works with me, uh, very much part of our own struggle. I would say the one thing that we, at least I took away um, from that time is when there is, uh, I would say, a lot of criticism of whatever it is that you're doing, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's appropriate for us to look in the mirror and perhaps learn uh, about what it is that we're being criticized about. Uh, and perhaps there are changes that we need to actually bring about. Uh, so I would say scrutiny of large organizations is absolutely something that is uh, going to only happen, and I think large organizations should welcome it. Uh, and, and we all can learn uh, uh, from it. And the core, though, especially in technology business, we collectively as an industry have to just mature and mature at a very fast rate because the impact of digital technology in our lives and in our society is so deep now uh, that for us to assume that we're just going to have unfettered access 
to all parts uh, without thinking about the unintended consequences of this technology are long gone. And so therefore, for us as an industry, for us as a company, to both recognize the opportunity of these technologies and the responsibilities, whether it's in security, whether it's in privacy, whether it's in AI and ethics, I think is going to be central. Uh, and, it's, it, and these are not going to be terms of competition even. I think this is where the industry at, at scale has to get a lot better. Uh, and I, I think that that moment is, is upon us, and I do see positive change. Uh, uh, but it is definitely a time for self-reflection uh, and change. So I want to circle back to your own leadership style and values. And what strikes me is that you seem to combine this sense of self and ability to stay true to your leadership style. You even have a story of Steve Obama telling you it's too late to be different. <laughs> with, on the other hand, this real belief in a growth mindset. And I think for many of us at the GSB, there's this question of how do you stay true to your own style while still knowing when and how to grow in the right direction? And so how do you think about those two things? That's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the ability to understand yourself is, is actually, it's a lifetime's journey, right? Uh, it's a journey of your lifetime to really unpack who you are and what you're good at, what makes you tick, what are your passions, uh, is something that, uh, what makes you happy? The question that my mother asked me all the time, and in fact, the more, the older I get, the clearer I am. Uh, in, in understanding even what she was asking. Uh, and then to be able to understand others. That's also another journey of a lifetime, right? Which is you sort of feel like you understand what others are saying. Um, you understand where they're coming from. Um, I think that's really what is going to perhaps help you with both be true to yourself, your identity, uh, what makes you tick, what makes you happy, while knowing that ultimately, I think a lot of that satisfaction you get is because of your ability to empathize, the ability, it, it could be your family, it could be your workplace. That's the other thing that I've come to realize is we can be transactional at work. I'll tell you, there was this gentleman, another uh, GSB grad whom I worked for, Doug Burgum, uh, who's actually the governor of North Dakota nowadays, uh, but there was this uh, time, uh, you know, in my mid-30s, he said something to me which just had a profound impact. He said, look, uh, you're going to work, um, uh, you know, at Microsoft uh, more time uh, than you were going to even spend with your kids. And I said, oh, wow, that's pretty, you know, that sounds pretty uh, harsh. <laughs> and, and yet it is true. And his main point was you better think about work having deeper meaning than being transactional. Uh, and, uh, and as I've thought about that, the only way it's not going to be transactional is when you relate to people you work with. Uh, and uh, you know that's what you'll remember. The projects you worked on, the technologies will all be passe in time, but the people, what you did, how you behave, what was uh, your, you know, I, I take great pride in these people whom I've mentored who, or go on to do great things. 
that's the relationship that I think you seek out uh, while being tr true to yourself and what makes you happy. And you mentioned humility earlier and how important it is to you. And you have this quote uh, that says, when everyone is celebrating you is when you should be most scared. And I think it's safe to say that people are celebrating Microsoft's renewal. So how do you keep yourself and your teams grounded among this success? That's a great, that's a great, that's a great question. You know, there's this uh, book I recently read by uh, David Brooks uh, called The Second Mountain. Uh, it's an interesting book because he talks about it mostly in the context of us. Um, you know, there's that first mountain, which is what perhaps many of you as graduates of GSB are going to be on, and you're going to seek uh, excellence and success in the professional career. Um, and then um, you're eventually going to get to that second mountain, and then you're going to sort of uh, in his words, uh, relate to the world and community and what have you. And I feel that that's really what's there for Microsoft. The way, uh, you know, having gotten to whatever high market cap in 98, uh, now for us, it's more not our market cap, but what is our market cap leading to? Uh, to your point, it's, if you celebrate our success, but Real, but fundamentally realize, if you sort of go back to our mission and our business model, right? It's not even a sense of mission and purpose that's somehow abstracted away from what's core driving our business model. We need to see success all around us. That's it. And so if we celebrate that small business uh, in Kenya or that large multinational in Sweden, uh, or that public sector company in Indonesia or in Vietnam, that's what's going to help us uh, be grounded and be successful. And so that invoking of that everyday sense of purpose is what I think is going to help us the most. Thank you, Sacha. And I think on that note, we will turn it over to some questions from the audience. Okay. This thing's on. Hi, my name is uh, Tara Karad Peer, and I'm a first year MBA student. And I'm asking this question in conjunction with my classmate, Jeff Kruger, who unfortunately couldn't be here, but we're both interested. Um, you've mentioned that at Microsoft, you've made a principled decision that you're not going to withhold technologies from institutions that have been elected in democracies to protect the freedoms we enjoy. This position, as you probably know, stands in contrast to a number of your peer tech companies here in the Valley. Can you elaborate on your decision framework as CEO to have Microsoft pursue U.S. Department of Defense contracts like the Jedi Cloud Project at DOD? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, one of the things that uh, we're engaged in is um, with deep respect for all opinions that people may have on things that we um, should be concerned about. Uh, but on this one, we've been very clear from day one on the statement you read out, which is I feel that uh, I have great belief in our democratic institutions and our democratic process. And one of my big fears is that uh, somehow CEOs or corporations uh, try and substitute for what I think in the long run is the most important thing for us, which is our democracy to work as designed. Um, and in this case, uh, if we don't like what our government does, we have this one great opportunity, which is we get to change, we get to vote, uh, we get to even take principal stance against our government if we do think that that is something that 
uh, we want to fight for. In fact, Microsoft, whether it's in the uh, previous administration or this administration, we've had cases. Uh, you know, it was the warrant case uh, around privacy is something that we were able to go fight. And then ultimately, uh, through the Cloud Act, bring about change, which was a bipartisan uh, legislation, which I feel is a good step in the direction uh, of having privacy enshrined in a legislative sort of set of processes. So that's how I look at it. Uh, I don't see uh, how withholding technology from, uh, as I said, the institutions that we have elected uh, that are subject to civilian control ultimately uh, to protect the freedoms we enjoy is going to help. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have ethical principles. We shouldn't ad advocate for ethical principles. And in fact, these institutions that we are talking about have perhaps a more of a history around these ethical principles as well. And so for us to rely on that and reinforce that, I think, would be important. Hi, Satya. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Prashant. I'm from Hyderabad, uh, and a second-year MBA student. Good city. <laughs> yeah, it's a great city. Uh, so my question is, uh, today, if you were a 20-year-old engineering graduate from India, would you come? Would you stay back in India and work in the tech and startup ecosystem, or would you come to the U.S. and why? And, and if, if you come to the U.S., how can we all think of contributing back to our home country? Yeah, I know. It, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I I I really, literally, growing up, never thought I'll ever uh, uh, go outside of Hyderabad. I had very, I would say, very self-satisfying sort of goals in life. I wanted to. Uh, play cricket and uh, work for a bank, and uh, <laughs> and uh, things changed. So I, look, I I I feel that uh, the opportunity, whether it's uh, uh, in India or rest of Asia or in Africa, one of the, we just created two dev development centers um, uh, in Africa, both on the west and the east side of uh, you know coast of Africa. There is great opportunity, there's great talent. I think digital technology in particular is a real democratizing force. We were talking even backstage uh, about how even when the rest of the infrastructure is challenged, uh, there are very novel ways for digital technology to overcome some of those things uh, because of the, uh, the most malleable nature of software in some sense. So therefore, I think uh, there's opportunity everywhere in the world, uh, but at the same time, for you to come here, learn from, uh, you know, learn in a, a place like the GSB and be inspired and go back is an opportunity you, I would take uh, if that sort of came about. Uh, but at the same time, um, it doesn't mean that that's the only opportunity ahead to have impact. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring up because globalization, let's face it, is going through a little bit of a challenging phase. Um, and I think that it's deserved in some sense because the globalization was celebrated to a point where the you know, inequities that were getting uh, you know, founded, I guess, or inequities that developed in local communities were not addressed. Whatever happens in this next phase of globalization will not only, in fact, help uh, that grand convergence of opportunity all over the world, which was, by the way, a very good thing in that first phase of globalization, but also address the local inequities, whether it's in India or in, uh, in Palo Alto. Uh, I think that that's what I think is needed, whereas there is real innovation that brings equitable growth everywhere, uh, is perhaps the opportunity for GSB grads in 2019.
this work? Hello. Hi, uh, I'm Casey Ullenhut, an MBA too. I also worked at Microsoft before I came here. I think I might be the only one. .NET <laughs> team, let's go. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, in your rise to the top, what was the biggest adjustment you made to your leadership style as you moved up in the company? You know, it's interesting. Um, I must say, uh, there was many, many dimensions uh, uh, perhaps the biggest adjustment was that ability to grapple with what is it that uniquely only you can do uh, versus what others in the team can do. Getting much better at it was the most helpful. But th the CEO job, when I look back at it, and many of you um, who may you know, start out and, you know, and become even CEOs much uh, earlier on in your career, uh, I had not understood, perhaps, even growing up at Microsoft, how multi-constituent uh, the job is, right? I mean, that's perhaps the biggest adjustment I've had to make, uh, is recognizing it's about customers, it's about partners, it's about all your employees, it's about your investors, uh, it's about governments, it's about many, many, many of these constituents. And by the way, it's not about, like, I'll, you, know, you know, it's not like office hours for each one of them. It is about all of them, all the time. And uh, how to think about that multi-constituent world, I think, is perhaps the biggest adjustment that one makes as you grow in any organization. And the faster you grapple with it, uh, the better off uh, you will be and your organization will be. So we'll now turn it back to our traditional lightning round. And I'm uh -oh. going to, <laughs> don't be scared. Uh... <laughs> We're changing it up a little bit this time. I'm gonna ask you to complete a few sentences for me. So, I feel most energized when? I see someone very excited about the impact of what they're doing. What keeps me up at night is? What wakes me up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good dodge there. Um, I am most grateful for? The, the sense of um, the, the, the love, the affection of people uh, that have um, had the good fortune, whether it's my family, whether it's the people I've come across at work, uh, the organizations that I'm involved in, uh, it's, it's just such a blessing. When I look back, that's the thing that sort of really I'm most thankful for, for the people in my life in all spheres of it. The most important piece of advice I could leave this audience with is? Is the piece of advice that Steve Ballmer gave me when I became CEO, be bold and be right. Uh, <laughs> which is if you're not bold, you're not going to do much of anything. And if you're not right, it, you won't be there. <laughs> Satya, thank you so much. It's been a real thank pleasure. You so much. Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by Tara Hill of the MBA class of 2020. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast on our website, www.gsb.stanford.edu. 
Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.